Good morning and greetings to each of you in Jesus' name. The one we worship, the one we adore, the one who saved us because he gave his life. It's him we want to worship this morning. I've been blessed by being here so far this morning. It's always interesting to see how God's spirit moves through the singing, through the devotional. I appreciated what Manuel shared this morning. And yes, he even mentioned a few verses there from 1 Corinthians chapter 3, where Matt just read from. So I marvel at how God moves. It's good to see men like Manuel get up and have a devotional, a well-meaning devotional, a man who has stood the test of time. Uh, I'm inspired to see men like that in the church who've been faithful. A few of you older men here, and that is a tremendous blessing to have that example. Men who've been faithful. Men and women who've been faithful. God bless you for that. As Matt mentioned, the subject speaking on this morning was assigned, or I accepted to preach on this, is the Anabaptist and Protestant view of Scripture. And now you might say, why do we preach on anything like that? Does it really matter? And Matt read from that scripture there in 1 Corinthians 3 and note a little bit of the struggle there that they had of holding one man higher than the other. And that's not my intent this morning. I just want to simply take a look at some of the difference between the two views. And as a church, we consider ourselves Anabaptists, right? You, can, you consider yourself to be an Anabaptist. And our faith actually has a huge, or our faith or what we believe has a huge impact on what we do and how we live our everyday lives. This has a big impact on us. So turn to 1 John chapter 5. I want to look at a few verses here. And just notice what it says here about our faith. Notice what this faith consists, what this faith is and consists of. Because here in this 1 John chapter 5, in verse 4, it says there, And this is the victory that overcometh the world, even our faith. Do you believe that your faith can overcome the world? So does it make a difference what you believe? Does it make a difference what you do? I'm going to read these five verses here in 1 John. Whosoever believeth that Jesus is the Christ is born of God, and everyone that loveth him that begat loveth him also that is begotten of him. By this we know that we love the children of God, when we love God and keep his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not grievous. For whatsoever is born of God overcometh the world, and this is the victory that overcometh the world, even our faith. Who is he that overcometh the world? But he that believeth that Jesus is the Son of God. Doesn't that sound simple? Believing that Jesus is the Son of God, that's who overcomes the world. Notice what this faith consists of in verse 1. It's a faith that believes. Believing that Jesus is born of God. That's a huge thing. Believing that Jesus is born of God. Verse 2. 
Love being love. God's children. Love is a major part of our lives. It's who God is. God is love. Loving, and so it's our responsibility, loving God's children. That really says who we are, how we love each other. Verse 3, it's obedience. Living out his commandments. And this is another big thing, obedience. This is what our faith is and consists of. What you and I believe impacts what we do. Now a person can say that he believes that Jesus is the Son of God. And people can fairly easily say that. But it's actually their, it's their actions that really say who they are and what they believe. You can tell by a person's actions what they are and what they believe. So our faith has a major impact on us. A number of months ago, I was working at a place, and the homeowner there, he, I wasn't there very long. He was showing me around what needed to be done at his house. I do drywalling for trade. And so uh, he, he was doing some remodeling, and he was showing, showing me around his house what needs to be done. And I wasn't there very long, and he said, what is your faith? And I was sort of taken back because how often does a person, do you ever ask people, what is your faith? Uh, you might ask, are you a Christian? Are you a believer? But he asked, what is your faith? So I said, I'm a believer of the Lord Jesus. And uh, he kind of pondered that. And he soon informed me that he's a pastor. And the church, I can't remember the name. I think it was some Presbyterian church where he had pastored and was now an assistant assistant pastor. And so uh, we had this, of course, we had some common things, you know, both being pastors. And so we had some discussions. And the next day, actually, he, he wanted to sit down as he was having lunch. And he had a, a lot of questions for me. And he, he asked, so what, what is your faith? Or, and, I, and I said, again, a believer? He said, because you said you're a believer in the Lord Jesus. That kind of fascinated him. And so he wanted more more information about that. And then he said, but what church are you a part of? And I said, well, I'm part of the Mennonites. Do you know who the Mennonites are? Yes, he knows the Mennonites. But, but what denomination, what, what part of Mennonites? I said, yeah, there's a wide variety of Mennonites. And I said, uh, I wasn't sure what else to tell him. I said, so uh, we're Beachy. Beachy? Well, well what's that? You know, I, th I think maybe I gave him the wrong answer because that just kind of opened another whole door of and so I tried not to explain that. So, so I said that we're, we're Anabaptists. Have you ever heard of the Anabaptists? Well, no, he hasn't really heard. He may have heard that term, but not familiar with the Anabaptists. Surprising. A man in, in Down, Downingtown, not familiar with the Anabaptists. I was a pastor. A little bit surprised. But uh, he wanted, again, wanted to just know what we believe. And so I, I explained to him where the Anabaptists came from and what they all believed. And, and I said, and they believe in adult baptism. We, we believe a, that a person that professes or confesses the Lord Jesus and uh, lives that out, that it, it's a person like that that we baptize. And then he made a comment that really fascinated. He said, yeah, I always somewhat grimace when I do our infant baptism. And I was sort of astounded and didn't really know how to respond to him, but thought it was fascinating that maybe he never really thought about it that much. 
but simply was doing what he was taught and what was familiar with and never really looked at the scripture and what the scripture says. And so I think it's important that we know what we believe and why we believe it because it impacts what we do. And I want to say from the start that my intent is not to make it look like the Anabaptists are a better people or no more than others. As Anabaptists, we have our weaknesses and have much to learn. And I realize that the term Anabaptist is, can be a wide range of people, Protestants even more so. That in includes a wide range of denominations. And even amongst Anabaptists and Protestant groups, there is differences in how scripture is viewed and interpreted. Matthew, remember Matt read there from 1 Corinthians chapter 3, and verse 11 is what I want us to keep in mind as I, as I go through this message this morning. There it says, for other foundation can no man lay than that is laid, which is Jesus Christ. That needs to be our focus. I'm not here this morning to lay another foundation. That has been done, and that will never change for the church. We are to build on that foundation. Jesus is the center of our focus. He is our rock. He is the one that we are to build on. In Matthew 16, we have the account where Jesus asked his disciples, he, he asked them who they think he is. But we know Peter's response. He was often the, the one to respond to Jesus' questions or if anybody had anything to say. Peter usually had something to say. He simply said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And then Jesus' response to him was, And I say unto thee, thou, That thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Jesus said that nothing is going to stop the church from continuing on. Jesus said, I will build my church. Nothing is going to stop that. So it doesn't matter what you and I believe. It can maybe be insignificant because his church is going to continue. But are you going to be part of his church? It does matter. Down through the ages, the, tr the true church has faced many difficult and trying times. The early church soon faced severe persecution. And sometimes the question is asked, why so much emphasis on being an Anabaptist? Why not focus on the early church? Were they not the ones the founders were they not, were not the ones right after Christ. Shouldn't we be focusing on the book of Acts and not so much on the Anabaptists? And yes, that is true. We need to be focusing on that. That's really where we go back to. But also at the same time, we need to realize what happened from the time of the early church to the Anabaptist movement and how that they... There, there was many mistakes and many people gradually drifted away from what the scriptures taught and commanded. And history has a way of repeating itself. 
And somehow, that's one thing that we don't learn so well is to learn from history. But it does repeat itself. And as you look at what happened in, that, in those times, probably can see that happening in our day, right in front of us, right around us. And so I intend to give a bit of history or background from the early church until the Anabaptist movement. And I'm not going to go into detail of this because that is hundreds of years. But just to give you a little bit of a picture, I think we do well to think about what took place there because it impacts our lives today of who we are and what our faith actually is. Starting at the crucifixion, we're all familiar with the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, his resurrection, and the day of Pentecost when God's spirit came upon the apostles and the believers. And this was a life-changing and a radical movement going from the old covenant to the new dispensation. Jesus fulfilled the law and the animal sacrifices were no longer required. We can hardly imagine the difference going from sac animal sacrifices to that not being needed to be done anymore. This affected people majorly. Many people went against that. It totally went against many of the religious leaders at that time. And as the apostles and believers spread the gospel, it wasn't long that persecution was rampant. And to be a Christian meant more to those early disciples than just being a believer or a worshiper. It meant being a spirit-filled person who was obeying Jesus in his daily life. And that was the big difference. It meant following Jesus in their everyday life, being spirit-filled. And because of their commitment to Jesus and the ongoing presence of the Holy Spirit in their lives, people noticed that there was something different about them. They noticed that they were being transformed, being more Christ-like in their lifestyles, their attitudes, the things that they did. And I think if you would have asked those early apostles and believers, I believe they would have, they would have said with enthusiasm that Jesus Christ is the center of our faith. Jesus Christ, the center of our faith. And then it was over for the next 250 years, the first Christians continued to be persecuted, severe persecution, and it spread because they moved about. It spread the gospel. But then it was not very long after, over the next centuries, so many changes were introduced to the Christian faith that it nearly became another religion. I appreciate what our discussion was in the Sunday school this morning, and there again, I, I just felt God's leading in the things that were being shared here today. Because as time, it, as time went on, Constantine came on the scene around the year 300, and he became the leader of the Roman Empire. And as a result of having what he called a, a spiritual experience in which he saw a vision of the cross, he stopped persecuting Christians and allowed Christianity to become a recognized religion of the Roman Empire. And so during his time or his reign and, and even afterwards, people 
came to be judged more by their creed than by the life that they lived. It mattered more what they said than what they actually did. So then over the next several hundred years, there was dramatic changes took place. You had the early Christians being persecuted for their faith. And now all of a sudden, they were allowed to meet in public. They were allowed to meet in buildings to worship. None of this had to be done in secret. For many years, that's what the believers did. They, they worship in secret. They hid in their worship service. And so for the new converts in the first centuries, th there was discipline. They received adult baptism. They, they were part of a local church. And eventually the church and state emerged, and, and then it became a requirement to be part of a church. So with time, it changed from being persecuted for going to church to the church persecuting those that didn't go to church. And I think that's something, that's hard for me to understand. Think about that. People that were persecuted for going to church, all of a sudden, they were doing the persecuting for not going to church. There was a shift to infants being baptized and all citizens except Jews belonged to a church aligned with the government. And all of a sudden, the, the focus was on the early church, the focus would have been on doctrine. And then it kind of changed to following rituals and even defending themselves from their enemies. All of a sudden, the Christians were defending themselves from, from their enemies. They were going out doing the fighting. And while members of the early church had shared their faith daily with their neighbors, now evangelism primarily was extending the boundaries of the Christian empire. They were outgoing, they were conquering the world as Christians. And then you have between the years of 1200 and 1500, there was a variety of people and groups began to realize that there's serious, there's something wrong with what they're doing, the way they're living. There's inadequacies and widely accepted understandings of, of salvation and the church. We know the Protestant Reformation in the 1500s how Martin Luther and Jörg Zwingli and John Calvin, they had a huge impact on this. And they came forward with significant changes of them seeing what the scriptures is saying and how, that, how they were viewing it. And they insisted that salvation is by grace through faith alone. And this was largely understood to mean receiving eternal life. And while we discredit some of these men sometimes, I think we do need to give them a little bit of credit because of what they, in their Bible studies, even though they didn't want to go to the extent of what some of the others like Conrad Grebel and Felix Mons and George Blorock, they came along and they had the Bible studies with them. Zwingli and, and Luther, they hesitated pulling away from the state because that just felt comfortable to them. Those other men came along and said, we need to separate ourselves from this. This is not right. But I wonder if you wouldn't have had men like Luther and Zwingli, if it would have, how long would it have taken until it would have pushed some men to really think about what they're doing? 
And so while we discredit them for some of their beliefs, I think we owe them a little bit of credit because it may have caused men like, like uh, Felix Mons and, and uh, Conrad Grebel to go beyond what they actually were saying to do. And they, as we know, how the, the Anabaptist movement started, they started baptizing people. And because of that, they were called rebaptizers and, and Anabaptists. And we know the stories of many, many who, who suffered severe persecution, unimaginable to us, to what people did to human beings. Awful. Because of their faith. They were in prison. They were put to death by Roman Catholic and Protestant authorities, Protestant leaders. And there again, I think if you would have asked those early Anabaptists, I think they would have joined in with what the disciples said, that Jesus Christ is the center of our faith. As Anabaptist people, I trust that we can still say that, that Jesus Christ is the center of our faith. Now I gave you just a small picture of what happened over a 1500 year time. And the things that took place back then, like I said before, have a major impact on us today. So what does this mean for us today? Does that affect us? Think about the Reformation movement, the Anabaptist movement. It had and, and continues to have a major impact on us today. And so our, our faith and core values and what we believe and how we live that out affects the generations to come. And I think we often, I don't realize or maybe take seriously enough that the things that I do today is that going to impact somebody from 50 years, 100 years, 500 years if the Lord tarries? Think about the impact, the things that have happened back in the 1500s, the impact that it has on a lot of people today. We don't have to look very far to see how in this country and even some churches the, the effects of godly principles and the teachings of Jesus, especially the Sermon on the Mount, they're being thrown out and disregarded. We live in a me world. It's about me and it's about how I want to live. It's about how I want to live out my life. And everyone else is to be okay with how I want to live it. That's the kind of society we live in. And so I want to look at some, some key differences between Protestants and Anabaptists. And I also want to recognize that we have gained a lot of knowledge and information from our Protestant friends. They have probably done better than majority of us as Anabaptists in studying theology and, and those kind of things. So we do and have learn a lot from them. They probably have more influence on us than any other Christian group. Because they believe exactly the same as the Anabaptists on issues 
such as the authority of scripture. And so we feel connection to them. And sometimes we desire to minimize our differences. When we need Bible study resources, we often turn to evangelical books and commentaries. We listen to their teachings via podcasts. We listen to their music. And if not careful, this influence, I think, has the tendency to erode the distinctive beliefs of us as Anabaptists, and maybe even more so than the physical persecution did in the Reformation days. So looking at some of those distinctive beliefs of Anabaptists in comparison to Protestants, the first one is scripture interpretations. How we interpret and view scripture. As Anabaptists, the way that we interpret scripture is, is more centered on the teachings of Jesus and his call to discipleship. And then the rest of the scripture is viewed through this lens and interpreted to us not to contradict the teachings of Christ and him being the head of the church. And this produces different conclusions than when interpretation is centered on the writings of Paul as often seen in Protestant teaching. A Christ-centered interpretation maintains that Christ's teachings can be followed with God's enabling grace and must be followed in order to enter into, into his kingdom. Jesus said in Matthew 16:24, if any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. That was Jesus way of life and him telling us what we need to do. And I think that if you have a Paul-centered interpretation, that tends to maybe overemphasize man's sinful nature and, and makes man helpless in the pursuit of good. And don't get me wrong, I don't think it's our good or the things that we do that make us a Christian but they are evident of who we are and what we believe. For the Protestants, emphasis is put on God's mercy and forgiveness rather than obedience. And they would tend to emphasize to worship him rather than to follow him. And I want you to think about that a little bit. They emphasize to worship him rather than to follow him. Yes, we need to worship him but we also need to follow. There's a big difference. And I, I want to be careful how I say this, but think about many of the songs that they sing. It is about worship, but not so much about obedience. The second thing, the Anabaptists believe the New Testament takes precedence over the Old Testament. Yes, the Old Testament points forward to Christ. And yet, whereas the, the New, New Testament is the final and ultimate revelation of Christ, 
I don't know if you've ever heard the term of the flat Bible, but Protestants would, would view that more of a flat Bible, saying that the whole thing, you take the whole thing together. Whereas Anabaptists, we would say that the New Testament supersedes what the Old Testament says. Yes, we, we believe the Ten Commandments. We live them out. But there's many things in the Old Testament that we would not say, that we would not live out, as far as political things and going to war and things like that. Jesus, when Jesus came, he fulfilled the law, and he commanded a much higher standard. And so that's why many would sort of take the Sermon on the Mount as being another time to be lived out and not in our day and age. Oaths and accumulation of wealth, participation in war and divorce and remarriage are, are often acceptable for many Protestant because they, they accept because they're the way that they view the Old Testament. And for the Anabaptists, the New Testament teaching on these issues supersedes the Old Testament. Third, the Anabaptists believe the Bible is the best interpreted when the believer is committed to obeying it. The early Anabaptists were concerned about how the learned and the educated of the day twisted the scriptures to get around the force of command. Martin Luther did that. He didn't like the book of James and mostly rejected its teachings because it emphasized a faith that works. And that faith without works is dead. He didn't like the book of James. In fact, he, he wanted to totally eliminate that from the scripture. And many Protestant, many Protestants highly hold things like baptism, communion, but then they would disregard, or don't disregard, but don't hold other things that we view as the same, like the holy kiss, the anointing of oil, washing one another's feet. They would, they would take baptism and communion, and they put that on a different level than what we would view. Now, moving from the Bible interpretation, another distinct difference between Anabaptists and Protestants is their view of salvation. And I, I know this could be probably a, a topic or a message totally on its own. And maybe it can sound like you're just splitting hairs. But some of these things actually do make a difference on what we do in our lives, how we play our everyday lives out, what we do simply how we view salvation. Anabaptists emphasize that salvation is by grace through faith, a faith that works. Notice it's not faith plus works, but it's a faith that works. There's something that's evident of your faith. And at conversion, God purges a person's past sins by Christ's blood and changes that person from the very core. and freeing that person from enslavement of sin and enabling him to actually live a righteous life. And God declares the sinner righteous because of Christ's work. And this is amazing. We can be declared righteous because of Christ's work. 
not because of your works, but yes, you have works because of your faith. And this is in contrast to the Protestant view that justification is the result only of an accounting procedure in the books of heaven that, totally, that happens totally outside the person. It's almost like it's not really something that takes place within you, but more of a head knowledge that you're believing that Jesus is the Son of God. It's more of a knowledge thing. And I found it fascinating when I referred earlier to that gentleman I talked to, that I soon sensed it was very important to him what you believe and your doctrine, your theology. That was very important to him, and he wanted to know that. And I think that's often where I want to, again, be careful about many people are more about what they know than what they actually live out. And so they're, they're very easily indoctrinated or come or embrace the thing of eternal security in their view of salvation. Once saved, always saved. And this doctrine is taught probably by most Protestants. One of the verses that they use is actually John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Doesn't that say for whoever believes is going to have eternal life? Another verse they use is John 10.28. And I give unto them eternal life and they shall never perish. Neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. That sounds like eternal security, doesn't it? Romans 8, 38 and 39 is another verses that they use. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And there are a number of other verses used to support their idea of eternal security. But I would encourage you to, to look at these, some of these verses that I actually read. John 3.16 and Romans 8. If you look at the context, it talks about God's love for mankind. His love for a person doesn't change under the circumstances. No matter what a person does or how much they sin, God still loves. And that's what John 3.16 is telling us. God still loves. That doesn't ever change. But as a holy God, that does not mean that he will tolerate someone who continues in sin. We can have eternal security and our promise eternal life, but it is conditional. There's a few verses I want to read and notice these verses, especially the word if in these few verses. Hebrews 10, 26. For if we sin willfully, after that we have received the knowledge of the truth, there remaineth no more sacrifices for sins. 2 Peter 2, 20 and 21. For if, after they have escaped the pollutions of the world through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled therein and overcome, the latter end is worse with them than the beginning. For it had been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness then after that they have known it to turn from the holy commandment delivered unto them. Roman, or Revelation 2.21 To him that overcometh will I grant to sit with me in my throne, 
even as I also overcame and am set down with my Father in his throne. We need to be overcomers. We talked about in our Sunday school lesson today about being in sin or the falling away. That's the point I wanted, about the falling away. So it, you can get any verse in this Bible to argue your point on whatever view you want to take. But I think it's important that we take all of Scripture. I had a man ask me this question one time, and this was actually a pastor also. He said to me, can a person lose their salvation? And I soon sensed where he was going with this, so I didn't give him a direct answer. But I, I simply alluded to some of the verses where, that I have read about the if and about the, the falling away. And I, I sort of questioned him on that. And he then asked me, how often does a person need to sin before they fall away? Does he need to sin once a week or once a day? Does he need to just sin every couple weeks, uh, every few months? When is the time that he is no longer saved? Now, everyone's hand should be going up and you have an answer, right? How do you answer that? How many times do you need to sin till you're no longer saved? And I don't want to put anybody on a guilt trip because I realize sometimes we struggle with that whole thing of being of assurance of salvation because we have sinned. And so I challenge him the thing of, well, if a person sins willfully, continually lives in willful sin, is that person saved? Well, then his thought was that that person probably never was saved. And that's often where they go with, their, with eternal security people. That is really their belief that if a person is living in sin or they might have been going to church and living in sin, they will say that person never was a believer or a Christian. I'm not the judge. That may be true. But let's not throw the scriptures out that also say about the falling away and the if part. I'm not the judge, so I don't know how many times you need to sin till you are falling away. But God spares that we are ever in that place because I believe that's when deception and apostasy, apostasy takes place. And so the Protestant view of salvation can tend to lead to careless living in, in many cases because of that concept of if I believe, I'm saved. And I believe it's a dangerous place to be. Because think about it. If my belief is that I'm unconditionally, eternally secured, then my choices will not impact my eternal destination. It's more of what I believe. More that they're more about what they believe than what they actually do. And so is it any wonder that the divorce rate among Christians in our country here is nearly equal to that among non-Christians. And you could go down the line. In my time, that has changed dramatically. I remember as a, as a young boy, 
being divorced and remarried was things that you knew was wrong. Not so much. That gets questioned. And we see what the pattern in the last 30 years of what has taken place of the homosexuality, it's the transgender, and it goes on and on and on because we compromise. And so because of their view of salvation, most Protestant Christians see no advantage to a holy life. God said, be ye holy, for I am holy. And I think we, are, we all realize that we're not totally perfected at, con at conversion. According to 1 John 1, 7, if we walk in the light, the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we walk in the light perfectly, we do not need cleansing from sin. But John apparently believed a person walking in the light may still stumble at times and need cleansing. It's a continuing thing. If you look at the Greek in this, it's a continuing cleansing for the believer. And so the two false beliefs that we must avoid are these. We are incapable of sinning after conversion. And then the other one is we can willfully sin and maintain fellowship with God. The cleansing of sin does not depend on our walking in the light which I understand to mean striving to obey Christ and do what we understand is right. The Bible says Noah, Abraham, and Job were righteous in the sight of God. Yet we know that these men were not perfect. They made mistakes. But their right living or doing what is upright that was the basic pattern of their life. That was their desire. That was what they wanted to do. Now just briefly, I want to look at the two kingdom concept. This is another distinctive belief as Protestants and Anabaptists. Anabaptists believe that their citizenship is in the heavenly kingdom ruled by Jesus Christ. And we believe it's not our job to keep order in the kingdoms of this world where we are only pilgrims, but rather to invite people into the heavenly kingdom. And this has a major impact on how viewing, how we view this has a major impact of what we do in life. Protestants believe Christians need to help keep order in society. At the same time, I don't think they've ever been able to figure out how to follow the laws of Jesus' kingdom which he taught in the Sermon on the Mount, and still keep order in the kingdoms of this world. That's the thing that they struggle with constantly. And so it seems like they have ended up dropping the heavenly kingdom values. There was a man who was part of the US Air Force for 12 years. And when this was a so-called Christian man, and when he visited churches, he was highly esteemed for what he did. Many of the patriotic Christians, they, they recognized him and, and honored him and praised him for what he did. He later went into full-time ministry as, as a minister and mission work. And he noticed, and it bothered him, but he, he, he noticed in going visiting other churches that it seemed to him like the temporal world was more important 
than the world to come. He felt that for the switch that he made from being part of the army to being a full-time missionary. The people didn't, yes, they recognized him, but not to the, they did not esteem him as highly as when he was actually in the Air Force. So where are we at with some of those things? From the very beginning of his ministry, Jesus taught that there are only two kingdoms on the earth, the kingdom of God and the kingdom of the world. And his message was, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Jesus prayed for his disciples in John 17, teaching us that we are not of this world, even as he is not. And so as Christians, our, spiritual, our fight is spiritual, and we do not fight with physical weapons. Many Protestants have tried to reduce the demands of Jesus, saying that the Sermon on the Mount refers to ways to respond to our neighbors and more inner things and not so much in relation to our government. And yet I don't think this, this does not line up with how Jesus taught. We see no hint of this, these principles are to be lived out with people, with other people, not just some of the time, but all the time. All through the New Testament, we see Jesus and the apostles demonstrating a sacrificial love for people of every nation. And they lived out the principles, not only with their neighbors, but also in the relationships of community and state. And so I ask at the beginning, what makes an Anabaptist? What makes an Anabaptist? Is it because of where you are born? Is it because of the family you're in? And it's largely because of the, our heritage and what we believe. But just because you were born in an Anabaptist family, does that make you an Anabaptist? Not necessarily. I like the way that Paul Emerson defines Anabaptists in three words. He says this, biblically mandated application. And I think that's a huge difference between an Anabaptist and a Protestant. Biblically mandated application. We can put a lot of emphasis on our heritage and that has its place but we also want to be careful with that. God does not accept or reject us on the basis of our heritage. He accepts us on the basis of our faith in his son Jesus. In our response to Jesus, we live out in obedience, in joyful obedience to his teaching. And there's no question that our spiritual forefathers saw obedience and baptism as the only possible way as a possible result of their faith. Faith is to obey. Obedience is evidence of our faith. And so I want to encourage us to use our heritage wisely. We have been given much. And so I believe there is much required also. God is looking for men, for women, and young people who choose wisely and that are faithful to him. Psalm 61.5, For thou, O God, hast heard my vows. Thou hast given me the heritage of those that fear thy name. I want to encourage us to embrace God's word, the teachings that Jesus had, that Jesus gave us, to live it out for his honor and glory and, for his, and to further his kingdom. 
May God enable us to do that. Kneel with me for a word of prayer.